open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, we saw last week the climax of Paul's ministry as a free man, how the Spirit worked in him so powerfully that his sweat rags and handkerchiefs were healing people around town. Now we see the opposite. Paul is sidelined, Paul is silenced, Paul is brought into a condition of, well, he says one thing in this passage, I must see Rome. Otherwise, we hear the truths of paganism presented as undeniable, and that's the last word on the riot. So it's a perplexing passage, as it shows the kingdom coming not just in power, but also in weakness. So Acts chapter 19, starting at verse 21. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a while. At about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the Asiarchs, who were his friends, sent to him, pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet. And do nothing rashly, for you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined, shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason what we may give to account for this disorderly gathering." When he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to see 
the weakness of your servants. Help us to see this assertion of the truths of paganism as undeniable and to understand what you would have us to learn from it. Lord, we praise you for the civic order that we enjoy in our own city. We pray for that to be the case all over the world so that your people can in peace and safety worship you and hear from your word. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, there's two portions in our text today. The first is Paul making ministry plans. That's just two verses, 21 and 22. And then the second portion, much longer, is a description of the union boss, Demetrius, who is obviously not a union boss for nothing because he's an excellent speaker and he gets the steel workers or the silver workers rather to come together and riot. And that's most of the chapter. We have, well, most of this passage anyway. We have almost 20 verses describing the riot, all of which is given over to the speeches of Demetrius and the city clerk and the shouts of the rioters. We seem to have come a long way from Christian proclamation. And we're back to a bad news article that just describes a riot in Ephesus. Now this is not the only account of riot in Ephesus that's come down to us from ancient times. Clearly this was a city that knew how to get upset and how to have the mob storm into the theater and shout and scream their heads off about whatever was the matter on a particular day. It happened to Paul. And it happens at a key place. It happens after his decision in verse 21 to go to Jerusalem. Why is that important? And the answer is it's important because in the previous volume, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus decided to go to Jerusalem. And it was at that point that things started to go south for him. Jesus in Luke 9.51 decides to go to Jerusalem. And that's when the opposition mounts. And of course the upshot of that is that he is crucified in Jerusalem. Well here Paul decides I have to go to Jerusalem. And right away the ministry in Ephesus falls apart. Paul is silenced. Paul is pushed to the margins. There's no Christian proclamation for 20 verses in Acts, except in a negative way, as union boss Demetrius describes Paul's teaching, in a fairly accurate way, but in a hostile way to say, can you believe what this guy peddles? This is bad for business. What is Luke showing us? Well, he's showing us that Paul is like his master. He's going to be the victim of mob violence, and it has to do with a journey to Jerusalem. And beyond that, in the story of the kingdom, he's showing us that the kingdom comes not only in power, which Paul had in the previous part of the chapter. We looked at that last week. Six powerful things Paul does in the first half of chapter 19. The kingdom also comes in weakness. Paul is unable to speak. Hold up in his apartment, hiding from rioters, the kingdom is still progressing through the assertion of civic order that allows God's people to continue their work. Well, let's look at it. First, Paul's ministry plans, 
Verse 21, obviously he's imitating Jesus as he decides in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. He's going to go the long way. He's going to go back to Greece through the provinces of Macedonia and Achaia. He's in Ephesus right now, which is close to modern-day Istanbul, there on the European end of Turkey. And he's going to go across over to Greece, travel in Greece some, and then return to the other end of the Mediterranean to go to Jerusalem. So that's his plan. He made this plan and it changed several times according to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And there Paul has to defend himself from the charge of being flaky in his plans as he makes a plan and then changes it and then makes another plan and changes that. Luke doesn't get into that. He simply tells us that Paul, directed by the Holy Spirit, says, I must go to Jerusalem like Jesus did. After that, he wants to see Rome, foreshadowing at the end of the book. He'll get to Rome, but he'll get there by means of a riot at Jerusalem that ends with him being imprisoned and taken to Rome, not as a free man, but as a prisoner. Paul's moment of freedom, his moment of triumph, his moment of power is over even though he doesn't know it yet. But the Holy Spirit tells him, go to Jerusalem. After that, go to Rome. And immediately, things start to go south. His team shrinks. Timothy and Erastus leave and go to Macedonia. He stays in Asia. What were Timothy and Erastus doing in Macedonia? Luke is not telling us that. He's telling us Paul's power is getting less. The number of his teammates is getting less. The people that he's working with are going away and working elsewhere. And here's Paul. The kingdom comes through weakness. So about that time, just at the time Paul decides he's going to Jerusalem, sometime soon, a riot happens one day. And the riot is instigated by Demetrius, who is clearly a union boss of some sort. Now, his day job is not to work for a union. There were craftsmen guilds. I don't know if they had any full-time employees in those days. Demetrius's day job is to make little miniature copies of the great temple of Artemis. You come to see the temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the world in Ephesus, and at the end of the tour, of course, what is there always in antiquity And today, it's a little thing called a gift shop. And in the gift shop is for sale a replica of the temple. Bring it home. Put it on your shelf. That Demetrius is involved in this, and so are uh, workers of similar occupation, other kinds of silversmith and craftsmen. There's a whole guild there in Ephesus that supplies the gift shop for the temple. Demetrius summons all these silver workers, etc., and he gives them this rousing speech. Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. He starts this speech not with the lofty appeals to patriotism, to religious sentiment and stuff. He winds up with that, but he starts with something that every silver worker can understand. Reference to the contents of the wallet. We make money by this. And Paul is threatening, 
our money supply. That's essentially what his speech boils down to. Paul is doing that because he teaches this particular thing. Things made by hands are not God's. If it's man-made, you should not worship it. That's what Paul has been teaching. And that puts our little gift shop business at the Temple of Artemis in peril. Now Luke has shown us this a number of times before. Money worshippers stand against the kingdom. People who value money above everything don't value Jesus above everything. What is the lesson we take away? Not, of course, not only should we not worship money, that's obvious. The other thing to recognize is that if the church is successful, if we actually succeed in transforming social attitudes and denting profits in certain businesses, those businesses, those sectors, will fight back. Now this is an idea that seems to be missing from the discourse in much of contemporary Christianity. There's, uh, you know, this has been labeled the transformationalist paradigm by various theologians, the idea that the church should and will get out there and make the culture a better place. We're going to transform this city, we're going to clean up this town, we're going to clean up various evil industries and practices. And, I don't know, maybe the best way it was ever summed up to me was a conversation with my grandfather, my late grandfather. I was doing pulpit supply at a church in Augusta, Georgia one Sunday morning. Cliffwood, PCA. And I said, Grandpa, it's only an hour from your house. Do you want to be there? And he said, why would I go to that church? That church is on one of the worst streets in Augusta. If they can't have an impact in their own street, as far as the level of crime and drugs and all of that, if they can't change their own street, why would I worship there? And there's a lot of people who look around at the church in America on a broader scale and say, what, some vast number of Americans identifies as evangelicals and this is the best they can do? This is how we're transforming the culture for Christ. This is, we're failing. The thing to recognize is that if we were to succeed, somehow, as Paul did in Ephesus, that would not be something the world would welcome. The world would not say, thank God for the church. It really made a dent in the opioid crisis. Thank God for the church that has really massively reduced consumption of pornographic material. Thank God for the church that has really stopped human trafficking in its tracks. That's not what happens. If the church succeeds in converting enough people that key industries experience shrinking profits those industries throw a fit. It happened in Ephesus, and it can and will happen again. If we want to see God's kingdom coming, we should understand that Satan's kingdom 
will throw right back at us everything it's got. If by some chance in the current war in Ukraine, the Ukrainians start to prevail, drive the Russians out, take the war to Moscow, and so on, would we expect that Putin would lose happily? Putin would say, oh, you're winning. Good for you. I'm proud of you, Ukraine. Or will he throw... And in the same way, should we expect Satan to say, oh, the church is winning. Jesus is winning. Oh, well. No skin off my back. But that's not how the devil responds. How does the devil fight back? Well, in this passage, he fights back, first of all, through a pagan confession of faith. Demetrius winds up his speech, our goddess will be destroyed Our city will be thrown into disrepute. We will lose our status. When they heard this, verse 28, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Their first response is this pagan confession of faith to ascribe greatness to Artemis. Maybe our money is at risk. Maybe our business is at risk. Maybe Paul is going to close up the gift shop at the temple. We fight back by affirming our belief in Artemis. Artemis is great. Of course, if you believe that Artemis is great, then you believe that Jesus ain't so great. Contrary, in other words, to our modern teachings, what people believe actually is important. First step in this fighting back against the church lies in this confession of faith. Confession of faith in Artemis. And the same, of course, is true today. Someone whose greatest value is money, who worships GDP above everything else, will not think that Jesus is the greatest thing in the world. You could see it among the money worshippers in our own society in this little war between Russia and Ukraine. Russia's GDP is projected to shrink by 10% this year. How could Putin be so insane? Who would would do that to their GDP? Money worshippers cannot understand doing something that puts their profits at risk. They can't wrap their minds around that. And in the same way, the same goes for us. If we become money worshippers like Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen, we can't understand serving Jesus if it might cost us something. Wait, I could lose my job for serving Jesus? Then never mind. Jesus, forget it. My job is more important to me than that. I could lose some money on this deal. I could lose some prestige. I could lose, right, name your God. I could lose fun, I could lose pleasure, I could lose power, I could lose fame, I could lose Instagram followers. Whatever it is that you're living for, if that then comes into contact with conflict with your service to Christ, it's going to win. Because that's the God you worship. 
So the money worshippers attack God's kingdom, first of all, with their confession of faith, and then second, with this big riot. Somehow, the union meeting turns into the entire city is filled with confusion and rushes into the theater with one accord. How do riots start? I don't know, but this one spread from the union meeting and suddenly is all over town. Thousands of people rush into the city. The theater at Ephesus is huge. It can still be seen today. It seats at least 25,000 people. And it doesn't say how full the theater was, but clearly a lot of people went in there. And they all go to the theater to try to... Well, nobody knows what they're trying to do. But clearly the opponents of Christ violate civic order. This is their second strategy to fight back. First strategy, pagan confession of faith. Second strategy, riot. And of course, they blame the riot not on themselves for rioting, but on Paul and his team for teaching about Jesus. Their strategy is to violate civic order and to blame the other side. These are the ones who have turned the world upside down, as we saw a couple of chapters ago. That's what some other rioters shouted. There's a riot here and it's all Paul's fault. Never mind that Paul is not rioting. Paul is not inciting people to come into the theater and scream for two hours. Paul is telling people simply, handmade gods are not real. That provokes a riot. Paul is silenced. Paul wants to go into the theater. And his fellow Christians say, no way. No, you are not going in there. Paul is so dedicated to the mission that he's like, oh look, 25,000 angry Ephesians. What a great opportunity to preach. And the other Christians say, no, Paul. No, stay out. And Paul's friends, the Asiarchs. Who are the Asiarchs? The officials of Asia. Well, these are local dignitaries who are elected to a ceremonial position by their city, the city of Ephesus. And the ceremonial position involves basically putting on pagan festivals and games several times a year out of their own pocket. So to be an Asiarch, you have to be certainly one of the richest people in Ephesus. Somebody who is going to host a vast 4th of July barbecue or a vast Artemis Day barbecue for the whole city. Somebody who's going to organize big athletic competitions. Somebody who's going to you know, keep up the civic life of Ephesus in its holiday traditions and its worship traditions. So these people, in other words, are probably not Christians. Certainly they didn't start out as Christians if they're elected to a position whose main job is to keep up pagan worship. And yet, even they like Paul. And they're telling him, please don't get involved. Let this riot burn itself out. So Paul listens. Paul is silenced. After his triumphs in the previous passage, where he's healing people, bringing sideline Christians into the mainline, casting out demons, getting people to burn their magic books, 
He can do that, but he can't stop a riot. He can't walk in there and say, you all need to shut up and believe in Jesus. He's stopped. He's silenced. And third step, the riot turns into absolute chaos and stupidity. Luke describes five things about the mob that make it sound absolutely pathetic. Number one, they don't know why they're there. Most of the mob has no clue. And of course, this happened in our own nation in 2020 with various statues of abolitionists and civil rights leaders pulled down and defaced. Why are we here? Oh, there's a statue. Let's pull it down. Never mind that that's somebody who was in favor of the same thing we're in favor of. No, they don't know why they're there. Second, they're shouting all kinds of mutually unintelligible things. Some shouted one thing and some another. Different factions within the theater screaming their heads off. It's chaos. The Jews or somebody puts forward Alexander. Alexander tries to speak to them. And then the whole crowd finds something they can all agree on. We hate Jews. There's a Jew. Let's all shout him down. So when they saw he was a Jew, with one voice, they screamed for two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Pure stupidity. Forget reason dialogue. Forget debate. Forget some kind of civic assembly where they talk about what we should do. Our gift shop revenue, our tourist revenue is on the line. How do we maintain it? There's no rational dialogue about anything. It's simply this chaos and stupidity along the lines of the Tower of Babel where they scream and shout and affirm only one thing that they can all agree on our goddess is great yeah pretty great so great that in order to prove her greatness you have to get together and scream about it for two hours obviously the city of Ephesus is not coming off very well here. Just as Proverbs told us long ago, there is no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel against the Lord. Is there any level of wisdom here as they try to drive out Paul? Any understanding of what they're doing? Any counsel? No. Far from it. Luke doesn't stop there. He tells us how the riot came to an end. And it's the city clerk who stands up and they finally are willing to listen to him. And he said, Men of Ephesus, he asserts these undeniable pagan truths. The city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Artemis and of the image which fell down from Zeus. Many people have read that and said, wow, they had a meteorite. They set this meteorite up in their temple and declared that it was an image of Artemis that came from heaven. And some have seen in this reference to it falling from the sky, then the obvious corollary, it's not made by hands. So we can sidestep the whole thing. Paul says handmade gods are not gods. Well, the gods made this one. It came from heaven and we just set it right in the temple. 
Now, other ancient visitors to Ephesus tell us that the statue of Artemis in the temple was made of wood. So, now that would be miraculous, a piece of wood that fell from the sky. I, I don't know. Luke is not interested in whether it was stone, whether it was wood, whether the town clerk knew what he was talking about. He's just telling us, here's what the guy said to the crowd. And the clerk adds, these things cannot be denied. Verse 36. It's undeniable. No one can deny our status as the temple guardian of Artemis and of her image that fell from the sky. Nobody can argue with that. Nobody can fight with that. Paul, in other words, is not going to disprove that. And neither is anybody else. So your profit pipeline is safe. You have nothing to worry about. You have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Now, probably if Paul had been standing on the platform with him, he would have happily blasphemed Artemis at that point. Since Paul is not there, the town clerk can spout whatever paganism he wants. And the church ends up profiting because the riot ends. The assembly is dismissed. The town clerk says, we're in danger of getting in trouble with the authorities for today's uproar. The Roman Empire was not big on riots. Somebody could essentially turn in the city of Ephesus to the provincial administration and say... City of Ephesus allowed a riot. Is that okay with Caesar? And the province of Asia could say, no, that's not okay with Caesar. And Ephesus is going to pay significant civil penalties for allowing this kind of breach of the peace in a Roman city. So the town clerk is saying, we really don't want that to happen today. We don't want to get in trouble with the province of Ephesus and we definitely or the province of Asia, and we definitely don't want to get in trouble with Rome. So if you all would just stop rioting and go home, thank you, thank you. The courts are here. The regular city assembly will meet in a few weeks. The assembly we know in Ephesus met three times a month. And so if you have a charge against Paul, take him to court. He's engaging in unfair business practices or whatever. There are proconsuls. Tell them. You're dismissed. The church profits from the assertion of civic order. Paul didn't seek to create riots. It was his opponents who deployed chaos. And therefore, we can say unequivocally, order is the church's friend. Paul is weak. Paul isn't creating civic order. And when civic order vanishes, Paul has to hide. The clerk brings back that civic order. And it's founded, clearly, on pagan premises. Luke doesn't say, and so Paul threw a fit when he heard that order had been restored on the basis of pagan premises. Paul said, this isn't good enough. If the rioters didn't stop in the name of Jesus, they might as well still be out there. He doesn't say that. Civic order, then and now, is founded on largely pagan premises. That is not a problem for the church. 
that doesn't drive us nuts where we say, well, I can't submit to Caesar. I can't pay my taxes because look at all the evil things the government does with tax money. The New Testament says throughout, oh, well, appreciate the civic order and use it to serve God. Don't throw a fit and say, we need to undermine this civic order because it is evil because it's founded on pagan premises. Yes, it's founded on pagan premises. But no, it's not evil. It is still good for the city to be in order. So what do we take away from this story of a riot in Ephesus? Well, from the first part, we take away that kingdom work is spirit-driven. Paul made his decisions on where to go based on the leading of the Holy Spirit. And even today, the Holy Spirit matches pastors with churches. He calls certain people to be missionaries and to work in various ministries, to be elders and deacons. It's the Spirit who makes that happen. And secondly, we see that the kingdom does change consumption and dent profits. When Jesus really reigns over people, that changes what they spend their money on. You aren't going to sell shrines of Artemis to a bunch of Christians. Nor should you be able to sell other evil things to a bunch of Christians. Before you buy something, say, is this a godly product? Is this something that supports evil? By buying this, am I doing evil? The kingdom demands suffering and comes in weakness. Paul did not get out there with the riot police and say, this is enough. He didn't go try to find the provincial administration and say, is there somebody who can go in that theater and shut down this riot? Paul was weak. He was not able to shut down the riot. But the kingdom is coming anyway. As in fact, we see in the next verse, after the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to him, embraced them, and then left, but then he comes back to to Ephesus later in chapter 20 and gives a magnificent speech there. Yes, the devil fights back. Yes, when the city is rioting, nobody is being converted. But eventually the riot ends. Eventually the screaming stops. And when it stops, the Christians are still there. And they're still ready to preach Jesus. May that be true of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is greater than Artemis of the Ephesians, that he's not a rock that fell from the sky, but that he is a man who came to us from heaven and that he is your son. (coughs) Lord, we thank you once again for the civic order that we enjoy. We pray against riots and mobs of all kinds on all sides of any issue. We pray for peace and order founded not just on pagan premises, but on the rule of the Prince of Peace. We pray that for Russia and for Ukraine for Yemen and Saudi Arabia, for Ethiopia and Tigray, and for every other war and conflict on this planet. We pray for peace and order, for the coming of your kingdom, the rule of your Son, the proclamation of your good news, 
Father, help us to understand that where there is not peace and where there is not order, your people can still triumph, can still submit to you, can still understand that the kingdom comes through weakness. Give us the grace to be weak, that the power of Christ might rest upon us, we pray in his name. Amen.